The Daily Rios Digest, December 5th, 2021. So I was having a text conversation recently with Mr. Phil from the old Indie Spinnerack podcast, and I came up with an idea that I wanted to share, silly idea, concerning what to do about that ever-growing list of unfinished comic book projects, meaning things like Frank Miller's All-Star Batman and Robin, Marvel's Quest Probe, DC's Sonic Disruptors, John Burns' The Last Galactus Story, Mr. Phil threw in Paul Pope's THB, Alan Moore and Bill Sienkiewicz on Big Numbers, Alan Moore's 1963, and then you have things like the entirety of the cross-gen line or several unfinished Kevin Smith miniseries, Image United, Miracle Man, etc., etc. So... I have two ideas that I think would be awesome in regards to those projects that were started but never finished. And I'm not talking about projects that were solicited or talked about but never saw the light of day. I mean titles, comics, projects that were interrupted, that were canceled midway, or really they were kind of like just abandoned, if you will. Now, initially, I think I may have talked about this on a DC All-Stars podcast. Uh, This idea spawned from a conversation about Sonic Disruptors. It was meant to be a 12-issue maxi-series from DC starting in 1987. It was by Mike Barron, Barry Crane, John Nyberg on inks. The letterer was Steve Haney, covers or colors by uh, uh, Laverne Kinzierski. And Sonic Disruptors depicted a futuristic America ruled by a theocratic military dictatorship where the only source of resistance is a pirate radio station broadcasting from orbit. We got seven issues, but then it was canceled. I did purchase the first one, never realized that it went to seven issues. I mean, I guess at the time I assumed it was finished, right? But then along the way, you you, you know, the lore of it is that... It was canceled and unfinished and abandoned. And I believe um, at some point Mike Barron stated he had no real idea where the title was going to end anyway. So here's my idea on how to wrap up specifically Sonic Disruptors right now. If we wrap it up into another DC concept, we could call it the Sonic Disruptors Challenge. Just like DC Challenge, just like the Commandy Challenge. Let's take the last final five issues, issues 8 through 12, and we can do one of two things. Number one, have five different creative teams on each of those issues and continue the story from issue 8 to 12, right? Pick up where we left off at issue 7 and do like the old DC challenge, a round-robin kind of storytelling, and just figure out where it's going to end by issue 12. Or, and I think this would be better and cooler, number two, have five different creative teams again, but create five different endings based on issues one through seven, right? But you only have one issue to wrap it up. So we would get a creative team ending the story in issue 8, and then a different creative team with a different ending in issue 9, etc., etc. How awesome would that be? And again, Mike Barron stated, no idea how it was going to end, so the sky's really the limit. It would be bizarre, it would be terrible (laughs) in many ways, but you know there are creators out there who probably read that story and, and, you know, realized just how zany it was. And they just want to blow it up. They just want to finish it. They just want to go bonkers and say, here it is. Here's the wrap-up to those seven issues. So the Sonic Disruptors Challenge, that was my first big idea. Uh, That was was an idea from like probably over the summer. 
But now, okay, if we go back to this idea of all of these unfinished projects in that more recent conversation, my new idea is this. Take something like Paul Pope's THP, THP, one of those unfinished projects, and as a creator, just say, F it, I have creative skills, or I have a creative team that would be interested in finishing the story, and we are going to, in essence, bootleg an ending, and like call it like the unauthorized THB, or or like, you know, black market THB, or something, and, and get it done in one issue, put it out there online for all to see, and just totally just go like backyard wrestling and say, I, I don't care, I, you know, no prior warning, no solicit, just like Beyonce, drop that baby out there, let people go bonkers, and keep it online until you receive the cease and desist, right? Think of someone wanting to finish big numbers or looking at Image United and just go, you know, I just want to finish it, right? So I joked with, with Mr. Phil and, and I just wrote, Jeff Johns, Gary Frank, Miracle Man. It would be awful, right? It would be terrible, but it, it at least would get the story done one way or another, right? And I just think that would be so awesome to take one of those unfinished product projects and just, you know, it's black market. It's it's guerrilla comic book creating. It's, you know, hand it out at conventions, put it up digitally for people to see. Uh, these stories deserve to be finished. You know, you have fans of these titles that, that are, you know, probably still holding out hope that we are going to get the final issues of Image United or this Miracle Man story that it, that they've been sitting on for decades, right? 1963, the unauthorized uh, final finale, right? Cross-gen, uh, the, the black market line, you know, uh, all-star Batman and Robin, bootleg edition. Just John Byrne's The Last Galactic Story, not by John Byrne. Just get it done. Get it done. Let's see what your idea would be. I think that would be amazing. But if you get in trouble, you didn't hear it from me. You know, Gregory, I, I just finished my first MGM musical. It's called Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, I, I heard it's very good. Yeah, I think it's the best thing I've ever done. It's my first dramatic role. Dramatic role? That's right. No wild and crazy guy, huh? Yeah, it's a totally different thing for me, but uh, I do sing and dance a little. Dance? Yeah. How long have you been dancing? Oh, about eight months. Eight months? How long have you been dancing? About 33 years. Want to do something together? You got the guts. <laughs> the world is right, my heart is light. I'm like a... Tap Dance History Tuesday. That was Gregory Hines and Steve Martin dancing fit as a fiddle from Steve Martin's best show ever, which was a TV special in 1981. So Gregory Hines was born in 1946. Uh, born on February 14th. That means uh, Gregory Hines would be 75 this year, died in August of 2003. I thought because of that milestone birthday, uh, it would be nice to honor uh, one of the giants in the tap dance community. If you know Gregory Hines, a famous tap dancer, an advocate for tap dancing, and um, very much in my mind is the one that brought tap dancing to the mainstream in throughout, throughout his career in the 80s and 90s, etc. Um, you might know him from the movie Cotton Club, White Knights, Running Scared, Tap, so many other movies, appearances on Will and Grace, appearances on children's television programming, uh, many, many, many tap concerts, many celebrations of people like Sammy Davis Jr. and others, appeared on Broadway, uh, specifically in a show called Jelly's Last Jam, and uh, did master classes all over uh, the country. I did not have the pleasure of uh, being in person, taking a class in person with Gregory Hines, but I know many of my friends who are also tap dancers um, did take classes with him and got to talk to him, and many of the people that I've, older adults that I've tap danced with over the years, uh, got a chance to work with Gregory Hines. So I only know his work from, uh, you know, movie, TV, 
videos on YouTube nowadays. Um, so yeah, so uh, Gregory Hines would would be 75 this year. So I thought I'm just gonna play a few things here, a few clips of of Gregory Hines himself, or from interviews, or from some appearances, uh, just so you know we can celebrate and listen to. Uh, a true genius of, of the tap dance community. Thanks for staying up later. We're happy to have Gregory Hines with us for the next half hour. You know him from movies like Tap and Cotton Club and on Broadway, UB and Sophisticated Ladies and coming up on the USA Cable Network in late September, early October, White Lie. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But something that jumped out at me from your biography, not surprising, but I think it kind of sums you up. You said, I can't ever remember not dancing. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I began dancing at three. My my parents gave my brother and I dance lessons, like like parents give their children piano or violin, just something I think to uh, round us out. And um, as it turned out, it was something that we enjoyed doing. And uh, tap dancing in those days was still a very credible art form, and uh, so they pursued it for us. But you know, when I realized I was alive. And these were my parents, and, and this is where I lived. I could dance. Uh, we had been taking dance lessons for a while, and I, I just I could do it. So um, even though the decision wasn't mine to become a dancer, um, ultimately I made the decision to stay with it. You said at that time tap dancing was still a very credible art form. You've done what you could to try and keep it in front of people and sustain it as a credible art form, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's... There's been, um, I would say, in the in the uh, late '60s or mid '60s, tap dancing just disappeared um, for a variety of reasons, or, or people theorize why. Um, and then in the uh, mid '70s, late '70s, it started to come back again, and that was a real um, revival type period. Uh, now. Uh, the tap dancers think of it this as like the renaissance period it's happening uh, it's still a real struggle for tap dancers to make a living uh, tap dancing but um, it is happening now why do you think tap dancing all but disappeared for such a long well period there's of time? a lot of theories some people think that it was um, it was rock and roll and rock and roll came in uh, the last vestiges of vaudeville as we knew it, which was shows where they had a singer and a band and a comedian and an acrobatic act and, and a tap act, uh, that fell by the wayside because they would have uh, record acts and people who had a hit song. Uh, some people think that uh, Oklahoma, when Oklahoma opened on Broadway, the choreography of Agnes DeMille was so innovative, so uh, spectacular um, that uh, Broadway musicals after that, which which usually had a, a, a tap line and a big tap number, mm -hmm. started to lean more towards that kind of choreography. Uh, the late and great Willie Colvan told me he felt that it was it was them production designers with all them shiny floors and they didn't want no scratches on. Them. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know why, you know, it was, uh, uh, but it, it it was a real bad time for tap dancers. You bring an extraordinary athleticism to dancing. Is that a part of what, of what Sammy was just talking about, where you're taking it to the next step? Uh, well, uh, I, try to, I try to really express myself when I'm dancing. And uh, as I dance, there are a lot of emotions that come up for me. So uh, I try just to, to, to lose all consciousness in terms of actually what I'm doing and just try to express myself. And so, also I try to dance in different rhythmical patterns, um, contemporary rhythmical patterns and feels instead of the normal 4-4 four, four time, uh, like this. I love tap dancing like that. Uh, and usually it was to music. There was accompaniment. Uh, so the seven, eight years went by, and, and life changed me. Different experiences changed me. I became a father. That really changed me. Uh, so when I put my tap shoes on again, I approached it differently. 
I wanted to try to express myself. And a lot of times, I wanted to do it without music. And I wanted to just see what would happen. I wanted to see what I would feel and, and how the dance would come out of me. Uh, and stuff like this would happen. a success as to where you want to be right now? I feel very happy about it. You know, I, I, uh, this movie is something that uh, I, I wanted to do for a long time. And, um, you know, uh, at this point, you know, my, my, my career, I feel very happy about that. And uh, my children are healthy and my wife is sexy. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Wednesday Night Fever. Recommendations for books shipping the week of December 1st. We start from Image, Commanders in Crisis trade paperback, book two, entitled The Reaction, by Steve Orlando and David uh, David Tinto, $16.99, collecting issues 7 through 12, apparently the conclusion to the series. Our world sits in the final reality. Empathy, unity, decency. Every day we lose something we thought we couldn't live without. To save us all, the Crisis Command must give up everything they know, from their egos to their idealism, and go on a journey of rediscovery as the clock ticks towards annihilation. Standing in their way is the Extinction Society, an organization convinced that the only reasonable act for civilization is self-destruction. To survive, the Crisis Command has to be something more than superheroes. They have to be something better, and they have to inspire the last Earth to do the same, so they can all meet tomorrow together. One of the things that I liked is about this series is that a lot of the covers were either directly or indirectly homaging other comic book covers, uh, comic book eras, maybe even movies. And this second volume, the second trade paperback, uh, the cover is the same cover that they used for issue 11. And it is a direct homage to issue one of 52 of the weekly series 52 by J.G. Jones. So that's kind of cool. From Dark Horse, we have Rewild, the graphic novel by Devin Grayson and Yana Adamovic. And this is Fables meets the Fisher King. Poe is a mysterious young homeless woman and self-proclaimed fairy changeling. Demond is an enterprising engineer with a troubled past. When Poe demands that a park be built to mollify a dangerous new mutation of mythical creatures ravaged by climate change and furious with the human race, Demond must question not only his own sanity but the rationality of our entire species as he struggles to save his city and maybe even the world. But are we past the point of no return? Magic realism packs an environmental punch in this graphic novel for $19.99. From Marvel, Avengers number 50 is Legacy number 750 for $9.99. It's the conclusion of the World War She-Hulk storyline. And uh, let's see. Learn the true purpose of the prehistoric Avengers. Uncover the shocking secret of the Iron Inquisitor. Behold the most powerful collection of super psychopaths that any Earth has ever seen. Watch the Avengers recruit some shocking new members. And follow the Ghost Rider on a quest for vengeance across the multiverse that will spark an all-new era in Avengers history. Marvel is just in love with the word multiverse these days, aren't they? Speaking of the multiverse, let's go to DC where that concept truly thrives. We have Justice League Incarnate, one of five by Joshua Williamson, Dennis Culver, Brandon Peterson, Andrea Burson. After the shocking ending of Infinite Frontier, Justice League Incarnate defends the multiverse from Darkseid across infinite Earths. Following a devastating defeat at the hands of the one true Darkseid, the Superman of Earth-23 leads a team of superheroes from myriad worlds that includes Flashpoint Batman, China's Flash from Earth-Zero, Captain Carrot from Earth-26, yay, and the brand new superhero, 
Dr. Multiverse from Earth-8 in a last-ditch effort to stop the end of every possible universe as we know it. $4.99. And also from DC, from Black Label, taking Twitter by storm, Wonder Woman Historia, The Amazons, one of three, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick, art by Phil Jimenez. This is the entire story of the Amazons, starting with Queen Hera and the goddesses of the Olympian pantheon, um, moving to a new society, being born, one never seen before on Earth, capable of wondrous and terrible things, but their existence could not stay secret for long. When a despairing woman named Hippolyta crossed the Amazon's path, a series of events was set in motion that would lead to an outright war in heaven and the creation of the Earth's greatest guardian. $7.99. And issues two and three will be drawn by Gene Ha and Nicholas Scott. Uh, I really wish Jimenez would stay on all three issues, but after seeing preview pages of uh, that initial issue, uh, you know, there is blood, sweat, and tears on those pages, and I have to imagine doing that again for two more issues would be a beast. So uh, they're getting other artists, but um, this looks to be, again, another Wonder Woman project that I'm very happy to support, and it has Phil Jimenez on it, which I'm also very happy to support. So I am looking forward to getting the physical copy. So as I mentioned, this is a Wednesday night fever, so I have some reviews. And what I did this time is uh, I took a look at some trade paperbacks that have recently been released. And I read the first issues of each of those trades to kind of get a sense of, you know, uh, how did that first chapter uh, land? Uh, You know, does that give me any thoughts about whether I want to continue reading And for anybody who may have seen these first volumes, these first collections, and, you know, maybe you were on the fence or you want to hear someone talk about it, I thought, oh, this is, instead of reading all six issues of all of these trades, I I thought, let me just read the first issue, and um, that way I can give my thoughts based just on that first chapter, uh, and then you can go from there. So I picked uh, Noctera, the trade paperback, Full Throttle Dark. Uh, collecting issues one through six. This was only $9.99. Image likes to do that first trade at a very cheap price. This was released in October. Uh, this was released on October 6th. Then I also picked um, from Boom Studios the Origins Trade Paperback Collecting Issues one through six. This was $19.99. And that was shipped on October 20th. And then from Valiant, I don't talk about Valiant a lot. Uh, the Visitor trade paperback, which also shipped October 20th, uh, and I just read the first issue of that as well. So I'm going to get a chance to not only talk about uh, the the individual titles, but also how do they work in terms as a first chapter, uh, not only for their respective trade paperbacks, but against each other too, right? Uh, So I thought this could be a fun experiment. Just read the first issues of recent collections. So we'll start with uh, Image Comics' Noctera. Ten years after the world is plunged into an everlasting night that turns all living creatures into monstrous shades, the only way to survive is to stay close to artificial light. Enter Valentina Val Riggs, a skilled ferryman who transports people and goods along deadly unlit roads with her heavily illuminated 18-wheeler. Scott Snyder, Tony Daniel, Tomei Moray, and And World Design on letters. From the text pages in the back, uh, Snyder himself said, This is big, bold, and character-driven. Big and bold, sure. Character-driven, maybe, maybe. So I liken this concept to something like The Walking Dead. And it's probably an easy mark to use something like The Walking Dead because it's so popular and it's a genre within a genre now, um, meaning that it's zombies, but, but it's this other genre of start a comic or a project or a concept 
with a large idea and go from there and fill in all the stuff in, you know, um, in flashbacks or in whatever. Again, not a new concept, but, you know, the mixing of, of two different things. I mean, Walking Dead's been around since the early 2000s, right? So anyway, uh, this idea of, of, you know, as a reader, we are introduced to a new situation, uh, usually, usually a cataclysmic situation, uh, maybe an apocalyptic situation, you know. So we're either in sort of like a post-apocalyptic world or a dystopian or whatever. And, and then there's always kind of like a big bad that kind of personifies whatever that situation is. So for instance, The Walking Dead has zombies and Noctera has these things called shades. Um... Why the Last Man is kind of like the last is kind of like the same thing. You're you're introduced to this new concept. Time has passed until we get to like the main story, and we have one person that we follow, and they usually have some kind of journey that they have to go on. Whether it's because they have information or someone in their group has information that can help the situation, or they're trying to find a place within this new situation. And that's, again, the same thing with Noctera. By the end of this first issue, uh, she has to transport this grandfather and granddaughter because um, he has he has a sunburn. And what did they say? I think uh, uh, that's very rare, right? That's rare because everything is in now in night. So when you get a situation like this where the concepts feels familiar... Um, God, you could even say the stand is, is, you know, right along these lines. The questions then become, are the characters interesting? Is the promise for a solution interesting? Is the world interesting? And for this Noctera, uh, I don't, I don't think it was enough for me, um, to really be invested. It, It didn't feel necessarily new it just felt different from things that I've read before, but not uniquely different. And even comparing this to another project that Scott Snyder is working on, Undiscovered Country, and I believe I talked about the first issue or somewhere along the way, um, that that concept just felt fuller in its potential or slightly, I, I don't want to say newer, but just something about it... Um, caught my attention. Maybe because this whole everything is in night and they're fighting these sort of faceless shades. Really, how much threat can those shades hold? Because they're just, at the end of the day, they're just monsters, right? But in Undiscovered Country, the threat was other people, other other civilizations within the other world that they were creating. I, I don't know. Unders- Undiscovered Country, I, I liked... It felt challenging in a good way. And Noctera just felt kind of cacophonous. Like just, I don't know. So There was so much going on and yet not enough going on. Um, the artwork was not what I expected from Tony Daniel. The, the, the artwork uh, has that kind of Tony Daniel flair. Um, but there were, there were many pages that I was like, oh, okay, that, this looks like a lot of time and care was... Um, used to explore this particular town or this situation or the costuming. Um, the coloring by uh, Tomei Murray was great, as always. Lots of shades of red and blue, and, and it's very vibrant. It's very, vi- <laughs> it's very vibrant for a book about the dark, right? That Which I guess is not a good criticism. Um, I read a review that said Snyder, it felt like Snyder was firing on all cylinders or that the kind of storytelling that Snyder was using felt very familiar with some of the other popular projects that he has worked on. I totally disagree with that. I, I think it feels a little generic in many ways. And it feels like a premise that they could then hand over and say, here, let's make this into a movie or let's make this into a TV show. Um, it's heavily dialogued over narration and over descriptive narration. So it feels like we're just, um, I mean, we get an, a, a voiceover, quote unquote, a voiceover, but it, uh, I, I, I've read more Snyder work that I've, I've been more engaged in than this. And this doesn't, um, 
this doesn't fire what I think of as Snyder in my brain. So it probably works issue by issue because it is a full issue. I will give it that. It feels like a complete issue. It feels like a number one. It it has a lot of things in it where you're like, okay, I want that question answered and I want this answered. The premise is there. The idea of what they have to do is there to, to fix this world, etc. Um, so as the start of a trade, sure. And also as a single issue, sure. I, th- I think it does work. I just didn't come to it in, in the way that maybe others might. So then we go to Boom Studios Origins Trade Paperback, created by Lee Krieger, Joseph Oxford, Arash Amel, script by Clay McLeod Chapman, art by y- Jakob Rebelka, colors by Patricio Del Peche, and letters by Jim Campbell. A thousand years after humans are killed off by artificial intelligence, one man is brought back to life, David Adams, who created the technology that destroyed his people. Now, with the help of the android Chloe, who revived him, David will try to restore humanity and stop the AI overlords he created. David embarks on the greatest battle of his life, seeking redemption while also discovering if humanity can or should have any kind of future. Again, we have another cataclysmic situation and setup, another journey uh, between multiple characters, another young person to lead the way out of this situation. Um, the first issue, I barely got hints of the story that is laid out in that blurb that I read. Uh, there's, you know, you kind of get the idea that this character of David was the world's creator, but you don't understand what that means just yet. I did not get that Chloe was an android. I'm not even certain I really got any kind of notion of what exactly happened to make the world the way it is. And it takes place in New York. Uh, I read a review that said that this had this, this first issue had a lot of exposition. No, it did not. You clearly don't know what exposition means. Exposition is description and an explanation. It's two pages of Chris Claremont telling you what happened in the previous issue and everything that's going to happen in this issue, right? What you got here was dialogue. And we have to kind of parse through the dialogue to glean what happened and what are the ideas. But it's all... It's all under under the surface right now. There's nothing that really jumps out as to, yes, this is exactly what happened. So no, it's not a lot of exposition. It's very much a prologue, this first issue. Meanwhile, the artwork is pretty great. I do like the artwork. And it's a great combination between the, uh, you know, Rebelka, who does the line work, and then the color artist, Dopeche, um, who is doing digital work and creating these watercolor effects so you get backgrounds with a lot of wash of colors wash of the same color and then with the foreground characters or with buildings etc you almost get these like color forms and shapes that when the when you put them together it creates images like a building or a bridge or clothing etc so i do really like that i think it's very pretty to look at and it kind of captures your eye um as a first issue, though, it does not feel necessarily complete uh, as a single issue. It really does feel like almost an interruption by the time you get to the end. It's kind of like they took a graphic novel and they said, all right, it's so many pages and we have to divide it up by six. And wherever that first chapter falls and wherever it ends, that's where we have to kind of cut it off until the next issue. So... In a way, if you're reading the trade, that's kind of good because then you have the rest of the you have the rest of the story in in the trade, right? You can just keep on reading. As a single issue, mm, not so much. But again, I'm reviewing this as the first issue of a trade. So in that regard, Noctera is a little better because it does feel like a first complete chapter, whereas this feels almost like a I don't know, like a commercial break before you continue. Which leads us to The Visitor, trade paperback, Paul Levitz, MJ Kim, Diego Rodriguez on colors, Simon Bolin on letters. Unstoppable, untraceable, unkillable. This is how he changes the world. Who is The Visitor? 
Why are the leaders of the world terrified of him? And will they live long enough to find out? Uh, I really picked this one because of Paul Levitz. You know, we're do I'm doing the Legion Project podcast with my co-host Eric. And uh, Paul Levitz has written a bunch of stuff in the past couple of years. And I thought, let me read this. I don't read it. I don't read any Valiant, quite honestly. But it's Paul Levitz. Let me see what that means in in 2019, I think, when the first issue hit and the trade, which uh, shipped in October of this year. And I read it. And by the time I got to the end, even though it's a full issue with a lot of dialogue and some action, I don't think I learned anything more than just what I would have learned from um, a blurb, you know. Um, the artwork is pretty good. Uh, it's by MJ Kim, who has... Uh, MJ Kim goes by Beta or Beta or also Sewer Beta on Instagram and on on their website. On their website, there's some really great artworks. It's really lush. You got a lot of macabre kind of visions of, of um, you know, creepy subjects put together with different objects. It's it's pretty great when you look at that. When you look at this art, artwork, you can see it's it's very anime-inspired um, in some places. It doesn't feel quite as full. It doesn't feel quite as um, explored, even though it's very detailed, which is odd to say. And it takes place in many locations in New York, and you look at you look at those locations, and you're like, yep, that's New York. It's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of action. Not a lot of plot. Um, definitely not a lot of narration or narrative devices. It feels like you're watching a television program where you just jump from scene to scene to scene. I don't really even... I'm not invested in any of the characters. They feel empty to me a little bit. Even the ones that you're like, okay, I know that that's probably going to be an important character, but yeah. Um, I didn't really learn much about the visitor or what they're doing or why they're doing what they're doing. And apparently you you don't really need to know anything about like prior versions of this character in Valiant, say from like, you know, the, the 90s. But I'm not, I don't know, like if you were a reader of that stuff, did this engage you? And again, as a first chapter of a trade... You know, if you got that trade, I guess you would want to keep reading, but I don't know if I would keep reading, honestly. If I was buying the single issue, I would have been like, no, that's enough. So, hmm, yeah, this one, not, mm, I, I didn't enjoy this one. I didn't enjoy it. This is definitely one where you need the next chapters, but I don't know if I mean that in a good way. So there you go. All three work very differently as opening chapters. Uh, as I mentioned, I think Noctera is the fullest, but beating a lot of ideas that we've seen before. Origins wins for, for me in the art, but it feels like a graphic novel that's just cut up. And Visitor definitely needs the, the next chapter and needs a lot more story um, before I think it really engages what it's trying to do. So, okay, let me know if you read any of those or if you like this little notion of just you know, checking out the first chapters of a trade, uh, send me an email or leave comments. Welcome to the Naked Geek. Pull up a chair by the fire, pour yourself a drink and get comfortable. I am David Monteith and maybe, like me, you've spent your whole life loving science fiction, superheroes, fantasy and the whole pop culture genre thing. Maybe, also like me, you've spent a lot of time with people rolling their eyes whenever you mention anything to do with it. But this stuff has made me who I am. It's been there through the highs and the lows of my life, from puberty to marriage to the death of my daughter. It's shaped my philosophy, it's given me friends, it's... Well, you know what? I could go on and on. The purpose of this podcast is to connect our passions to look at what in the genre has inspired us, taught us, got us through tough times. So journey with me, where I, with the help of a friend every now and again, will be getting mentally naked, if you like, embracing vulnerability and purpose, exploring a life lived in geekdom, and possibly enjoying the odd drink along the way. 
This podcast will be available on the podcast app of your choice once a week and won't even take up that much of your time. I am David Monteith, the Naked Geek. I won't actually be naked though, so you know you can you can get that out of your head right now. So it's December and I was trying to come up with a segment for this Thursday, December 2nd, and I was looking for um, birthdays. I was looking to see if anybody had a birthday on December 2nd, a creator, a character, etc. And came across, of course, one of the DC calendars from the 70s. And I looked at this and I was like, oh look, here's all the December dates that they tried to pinpoint for December. I don't know if any of this actually sticks to this day, but I thought it was kind of fun to look through this. For instance, on December 1st, Dr. McNighter becomes Dr. Midnight, and this calendar is from 1976, so the dates line up to where we are right now in uh, 2021. So for instance, uh, Wednesday was December 1st, and apparently that's the same thing here as in 1976. December 2nd, there was nothing. But for Friday, December 3rd, that's the birthday of Adam Strange. Who knew? Uh, let's see. December 5th is the birthday of Dr. Mind. December 7th is the birthday of Harvey Dent. December 8th, the birthday of Nora Now, Dream Girl. December 9th is the birthday of Oliver Queen, Green Arrow. Uh, December 11th is, is the birthday of Captain Cold. On the 13th, we have Sylvester Pemberton, the star-spangled kid. December 14th is the birthday of Color Kid of the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Uh, December 18th, the birth date of the Golden Age Starman, Ted Knight. And December 19th, the birthday of Princess Projectra. And then we have, let's see, on the 22nd, Breck Bannon, Polar Boy. And on the 23rd, the twins, Billy and Mary Batson, Captain Marvel and Mary Marvel. On the 27th, it's the birthday of the Shining Knight. And on the 30th, the birthday of Quirrell Doc's Brainiac 5. And then some other key things here. Let's see, December 20th is when um, Abin Sur dies and passes his ring on to Hal Jordan. And December 4th was apparently when Batman had his first case. So that's kind of fun. I'm sure if you know these DC calendars, you may even have them. Uh, they tried to list these birthdays. Again, not sure if they pulled them from the comics or if it was just all arbitrary. Some of you might know. But I thought that would be a fun rundown for uh, this Thursday, December 2nd segment. It is a new month, so it's time for some feedback. Feedback Friday. We start off with a comment from Eric, my co-host on the Legion Project podcast and also the host of Longbox Review, on one of the meanwhiles where Dick Giordano was talking about how Marvel was kind of dumping on DC and that over at DC they weren't going to play those games. They weren't going to play those reindeer games and return or retaliate. So Eric wondered... What was it that Marvel said that made Dick Giordano respond in the first place? So I looked at a couple bullpen bulletins from around cover dates of anywhere from like June of 1982 uh, through February 1983. I only really found two very small passages, but I might have missed something or maybe they said something in the letter columns. Um, so... In the bullpen bulletin from cover date of June 82, Jim Shooter writes this, and Shooter is talking about how a stepladder crashed into a window of the Marvel offices. Apparently, it, it had been blown off from a nearby roof. So Jim Shooter writes, Had the dire competition at last perfected their stepladder cannon? And dire, cap dire competition is all bolded 
or uppercase. And dire competition is DC, right? Dire competition, DC. And then from the February 1983 cover date, bullpen bulletins, again by Jim Shooter, um, he addresses a rumor. So he says, the rumor of the month. It seems that some strange folks out there have been spreading the weird notion that we here at the House of Ideas are planning to make all sorts of drastic, destructive changes, tearing down everything we've built up over the years on a number of our top titles, even killing off a passel of Marvel stars. What balderdash? Change, of course, is the essence of what makes the Marvel Universe come alive, and I'll be damned if I'll ever let things stagnate here. There are enough dull comics in the world without any Marvel titles slipping back into their ranks. And again, dull comics is all uppercase, and it's also DC, right? Dull comics, DC. I don't know if that's enough for what Dick Giordano was responding to, but it was the only things I found, um, again, unless I missed something or uh, there was an oversight somewhere in one of the letter columns or a comment in a trade magazine or something like that. But still, uh, you know, dire competition, dull comics, that's a far cry from distinguished competition. Chris Beckett from that same digest from November 7th, again about the Meanwhile column where Giordano was hyping up Ronin. And Chris says, You acknowledge that it was a big deal, which took me back to the Masters of Comic Book Art video and a Frank Miller interview where he discusses that directly. And he's talking about Ronin and how it changed, uh, you know, comics to some degree, but also really changed Frank Miller when you listen to the video. And I knew that there had to be an interview from Miller from that time. Um, so thank you, Chris, for pointing it, pointing that video uh, to that very young Frank Miller and talking about Ronin. Thank you for pointing that my way. I'll have to play that sometime. Stephen writes in to say, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the Dark Knights of Steel. I myself am a huge Tom Taylor fan, and as far as this or that, I'm not smart enough to even attempt to try and figure out what choosing one or the other might mean. I had a couple comments about the new Vibology segment in the last Digest. So Corwin from the EMX podcast says, Fantastic segment. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, you get used to being underrepresented which doesn't make it right. And then uh, Corin mentions that uh, he's going to drop uh, uh, an email comment to talk further on that, which is awesome. Can't wait to get that. And then I also got a comment um, based on that same episode. And uh, this is from Sleepy Reader, Sleepy Reader 666. I'm a big fan of the Digest podcast series by Peter. And this week I was especially impressed by the Vibology segment. It was very strong. And I wrote, I, you know, I was really thankful that, uh, that he dropped that comment. And I'm definitely excited for all of the possibilities for the Vibology, um, for the Vibology segment. Troy Wilson wrote in to say that he believes the Dark Knight Returns cover image. We are seeing Batman's back. Um, that was in relation to one of the one of the homage covers that I saw, and they draw the character with their front showing to the audience, uh, to the viewer, you know. But I always saw that Dark Knight as, as the back, but you know, it made me question which way it was. So. Thanks for writing in on that, Troy. I got a sports movie recommendation from Brett Scott from the Marvel Plus podcast. And uh, Brett wrote Any Given Sunday, which is directed by Oliver Stone. So I don't know why I haven't seen it to date because I like Oliver Stone movies. And big shout outs to anybody who've, who has liked or retweeted any of my tweets. Sean Whalen, Ben Lyons, Sergeant America, Snowman71, David D, Darren Rainbow Cloak. Stephen H., Ed Moore, Chris L., Michael Alex, and anyone else that I might have missed, go check out uh, Resurrections Podcast, episode 144, where uh, Al Sedano invited me on to talk about the first issue of The History of the Marvel Universe by Mark Wade and Javier Rodriguez. Uh, we got to dig into some history and some prehistory of the Marvel Universe and a lot of cosmic stuff, 
And it was a really great chat, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to doing more. Um, I have been going through Marvel Saga, the original Marvel Saga from the 80s myself. I was doing it on Twitter where I was dropping some nuggets of stuff that I learned or some really cool connections between character origins, etc. And uh, that was the impulse for Al to reach out. and, and I, Or I might have talked about the history of the Marvel Universe and... and Al said, you know, let's do an episode. So we finally did it. It is finally released. I will include a link eventually on the Daily Reels uh, website or follow Al at Adam Thanos Pod on Twitter uh, because it was a really good conversation. So, and I love books like that. All right, you can send me an email, peter at thedailyrios.com or visit the website, thedailyrios.com or follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Go follow the Daily Rios Instagram Send me a promo of, of any sort uh, or a talkback or audio comment so I can include it in a future digest. This has been the Daily Rios episode 534, the 22nd digest for Sunday, December 5th, 2021. Talk to you soon. Get him out of here. Wait a minute, wait, you're going to blow this now. You can make a lot of money with me. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Money? Come here. Ow. I'm very entertaining. I got special talents. I'll show you. Look out. Sand. I got to have a little sand. What? Sand. You're standing on it. Yes. I did a sand on the stage for the native Shim Sham sand dance. Look out. I'm going to start. Born to do it. <laughs> hey, what country are you from? Ethiopia. What part? 125th Street. <laughs> I'm gonna sign him up. The big turn. And that's the Ethiopian Shim Sham. <laughs>